Welcome to the Behind the Goals podcast, the podcast about fans, for fans and by fans. Please welcome your hosts, Andrew Jenkin and Alan Russell. Welcome to episode 25 of the Behind the Goals podcast. This week, Andrew is going to be talking to Colin McPherson. Colin is a photographer, um, very well known. He's done a lot of work around football and around other topics. But he's also a writer. Um, he's written in Nutmeg and When Saturday Comes uh, and is uh, a very sort of prominent commentator on Scottish football. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't make it into the recording, um, so I'm playing catch-up a little bit. Andrew, what did you think about the podcast? I mean, what's, what was your, your idea about getting Colin in? Yeah, so Colin has... Um, I, was, I was fortunate enough that uh, last year um, I got to spend a day with Colin doing a photography course. So I've always been interested in photography and I was very privileged to be able to spend a day with him photographing his last game at Meadowbank for Edinburgh City. So um, that was just absolutely fascinating for me to get, you know, to actually meet him and because I've been watching a lot of his work and mm. when Saturday comes um, and it, and some of his writing as well in Nutmeg. So to get to spend the day with him was really interesting and so wanted to get him on the podcast to just chat about a lot of things, particularly um, anyone that knows Nutmeg. So when we had Ali on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, he was talking about Nutmeg. The first ever article that was ever written in Nutmeg was written by Colin talking about what it means to support a team, which yeah. I think really yeah. comes down to the essence of what this podcast is about, yeah. which is about identity, community, yeah. and we discussed that article. How do we choose our team? What does it mean to us? How does yeah. it become part of, of our own identity? And, and, and how, do we, how do we put that out there in the world? And I think as well that the, the kind of um, dichotomy between actually the fact that often a team is kind of forced on you, right? So I support <laughs> West Ham. Apologies for everyone living. I know probably people know I support West Ham. But the fact that, that I support West Ham because of my family and like that we're from that part of Essex and um, are you are you saying it wouldn't fit your values as they are just now if you don't no, have a team? exactly uh, you know if so if I was a complete neutral would I choose West Ham absolutely not but you you don't have a choice in that matter do you and I love them for you know everything that they represent to me as a, as a family you know and I I couldn't support anyone else so we just we kind of explore that idea quite a lot uh, and uh, uh-huh. that was fascinating so hopefully people enjoy listening to that as much as I did um, talking to Colin about it and we also talk about his fictional writing uh, which he's done in Up and F- uh, about Up, Up and FC a fictional team that he's written about in Nutmeg yeah. which I think is coming out very soon I think actually I'm just I'm, I'm on the hoof here a little bit but I think there may be a connection to the Jimmy Bone interview of last week with Jimmy Bone's from Fallon uh, which is near Stirling yes. so Uppen is Uppen based as a fictional version of Fallon uh, it could well be. All the Collins said was it was a fictional team in Falkirk. Okay. Uh, so there is a close geographical connection, perhaps. Right. So there might be. Yeah. It might be. Maybe yeah. that's what it's based on. Uh, incidentally, if you've not heard it already, if you've not gone, if you're not, you didn't catch it last week, go back and listen to the Jimmy Bowen story. Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. We loved it. We it's, it's probably, it may be our favorite podcast recording so far. Uh, if it's not, it's definitely in the top three. Um, yeah. And uh, go back, listen to last week's episode, boost our numbers, rate us, review us, tell us what you think of that. All of that. Email us at behindthegoals at hotmail.com if yeah. I'm remembering that right. Yeah. Um, and, and tell us what you think because it's a brilliant story. Yeah. And I've, um, as 
you have, I'm sure, been listening to other podcasts. You know, to I never listen to any other podcast. No, no. I've got hundred percent loyalty <laughs> behind the goal. So you just listen to yourself every week. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I noticed that lots of other podcasts say is, um, you know, rate us on iTunes. That's yeah. apparently the, that's that's what gets us up the charts. It gets us up the charts, and and the purpose of getting us up the charts is so that other people can find us. Yes. Um, I think and if you, share in our joy. I think if you go into Scot- to, to iTunes and type in Scottish football podcast, you'll probably find us, but maybe quite low down the list. So actually do something that can help us be found by people um, more than just by word of mouth, which is great, but um, help as many That's, people that, as possible. Word of mouth us. is always the best, but yeah. the second best is five stars on iTunes. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> five please. Stars. <laughs> four, is four okay? No, no, no five no, no, stars. No, five no, stars no. on iTunes. Okay. So anyway. On with the podcast. <laughs> on with the podcast. Enjoy Stop this Stop waffling, Andrew. Yeah, I know. You started this. I always hate it when people talk too much in the intro. So enjoy this podcast. <laughs> Colin, thank you so much for joining us in our little office here in uh, Karen Shaw and Falkirk. Pleasure. Very good of you to join us. You have a fascinating career, which um, we're going to be talking about for the next little while. But um, I wanted to just ask you, you're just back from Australia. Yes, I am. Um, Three months going around Australia, uh, every corner, 40,000 kilometres in the company of the Queen's Baton, Mm. run up to the commonwealth games in gold coast in queensland um so i was one of two photographers um who won the contract to i mean really just document the whole journey of the baton not only in australia but throughout the whole commonwealth so the journey started uh, on the 13th of march 2017 at buckingham palace mm. and uh, my colleague who's also a scott a fellow scott scottish photographer jeremy sutton hibbert he beetled off to Africa, so he did the first part of Africa, and then we, we literally a bit like a, a baton handover, yeah. we handed over in uh, Malawi in uh, April last year, and then so I did then six weeks through southern Africa, and then he started the Caribbean. I finished the Caribbean and did the Americas, which is a lot of traveling, because mm-hmm. you're going all the way, and especially the way we did it, we ended up going sort of... Um, I think sort of Bahamas, Bermuda, and then all the way through Canada, and then down to Belize, Guyana, and then famously, we did a day trip to the Falkland Islands. Wow. Which involved 24 hour, five flights, 24 hours, four countries, from Guyana to the Falkland Islands. Then the weather closed in. We were supposed to be there for three days. And then we were told, you better get out of here or you'll be stuck here for a week, and the baton's got to be back in England. So uh, 27 hours after we touched down in in uh, Falkland Islands, we were on an RAF plane up to Bryce Norton. Wow. Yeah, so that was our day out in the Falklands. Um, what was it like? Uh, well, the funny thing was, because all the way through the entire Queen's Baton, really, I have been in blazing hot sunshine, sure. with the exception of the Falkland Islands, because it was August, and it was the middle of their winter. Mm. So it was absolutely freezing. So we, we, you know, we went from sort of shorts and t-shirts. And, and had you packed appropriately? Or? I had. <laughs> um, that's the maybe the boy scouting me. I certainly had. Uh, my colleagues were all Antipodean. Um, well, I, they had to be resuscitated after a few hours. They were so cold. But it, we got a very warm welcome down there. It was really interesting. Obviously, I, I would have loved to have stayed three days. Um, and then, so we took the baton back to England. Then my colleague took it round a bit of. Europe, and then I took it around a bit more of Europe, and then I took it through Asia, which was fantastic. Places like Pakistan, mm. Bangladesh, um, Brunei, 
countries that you just wouldn't normally visit. Mm. So to go there and to work there was a real privilege. Mm. Uh, and then we, we sort of went Malaysia, Singapore, which was fantastic, and then a bit of Oceania. Um, and then uh, after Christmas, um, middle of January this year, we started the, the sort of serious relay business around Australia, starting in Canberra, as I say, 40,000 kilometres, um, all, all the states, all the territories, breakneck speed, mm-hmm. and then delivered it for the opening ceremony on the 4th of April in Gold Coast. And then flopped down on the beach for three days. <laughs> so you weren't actually there to photograph. You didn't photograph any of the games themselves. No. It was more the the baton. The baton, which is, a, I mean, it's the yeah. Queen's message, but it is essentially a promotional tool. Mm. You're taking it round in order to um, promote the values of the Commonwealth, things like that, but also basically to sell tickets. It's about okay. bums on seats at okay. the games. Um, but you know it's it's quite a political thing, so it's got to visit all seventy nations and territories. How many? Sorry, seventy nations 70. and territories. So Incredible. I did. Th- I think I did thirty four, and my colleague did the Jeremy did the rest. Uh-huh. So yeah. Were there any particular moments that stand out as? Favorites? Oh yeah, I mean you, you, yeah. There's there's a there's a ten hour podcast in this. If I ever write my <laughs> memoirs, there's chapters and chapters on it. I mean, it was immense fun. It was it was just the diversity of the people that you met, the places you visited. I mean, you you go into the smallest. I went to Nauru, which has got a population of ten thousand. I went to India, which has got a population of one point four billion. You know, all in the same rotation, mm. all part of, of of the same journey. Um, I mean, places like Pakistan. When I say sort of, I went to Pakistan. That was my favourite country. People sort of take it in inhale of breath because that's you know you know Pakistan is a country which you know you constantly hear negative stuff about mm. so I was really fascinated to go there and although we were only there for I think three and a half four days um, and the security was unbelievable mm. I mean it wasn't a case where you could just you know, sort of put your bag down and wander off or yeah. take the day off and, and wander around the streets of Lahore you couldn't do that mm. for obvious reasons but um when you actually met people there and you worked with them and you engaged them, um, I think because you're working on such a positive story, if you like, people just open up to you. Mm. So the, the, the Commonwealth is, is, has got a really good name amongst the Commonwealth territories and the Queen's Baton and the Games are very, very popular. Because it's, a, it's an opportunity for a lot of, especially the smaller countries, to, to win something, to make a mark mm. on the international stage. And they're incredibly proud, you know, if you go to... Kerry Bass and you find uh, the champion weightlifter who's won a Commonwealth gold medal. He's a national hero. Mm. That's wonderful. Mm. It's uplifting. Absolutely. So it was yeah. a great. It was a great thing to work on. Physically, extremely demanding. But I mean, yeah. Mm. And did you get to? Did you get to see much sport at all whilst you were in those countries and experience that, or was it? Were you mainly you, you were you know really closely following the bat? Just really closely following the bat. I mean, I managed to. We we were there in the Bahamas for the Commonwealth Youth Games. Which is great because Scotland had a good presence there, and they they won a few medals. And um, uh, I bumped into oh, uh, what's his name, ex Kilmarnock player Jerome Verai, oh, right. okay. whose whose son or daughter, I think daughter, was competing in the fifteen hundred meters. I might have that all wrong. It's definitely Jerome Verai, and we had a great time with him. And and yeah, we talked football as well. And the only other time I managed to, I, I got to a Champions League game in Cyprus. Fantastic. Uh, okay. Apoel Nicosia against Tottenham. Okay. So I saw Harry Kane hat trick. That wasn't too bad. 
Um, and then I got to, I snuck away and did a, uh, an assignment for When Saturday Comes, um, Guernsey FC, <laughs> who happened to be playing on my day off in Guernsey. <laughs> right, so I shot that for the magazine. Um, other than that, no, I mean, I, I saw a bit of cricket in Jamaica, a bit of one-day cricket, which is great because I'm mm. a big cricket fan and mm. a big West Indies fan. Uh, so that was quite good. But yeah, we, I mean, we're just moving at such pace. You were staying in these countries sort of between, you know, sort of three and five days maximum. So you're just tearing around 100 flights, 190,000 kilometres wow. travel. Mm. Yeah. So you came back to uh, Queen of the South first under United? Yes, didn't disappoint. <laughs> I came back some Australian weather as well. The whole month has been yes, uh, laid this fantastic. gorgeous yeah. weather. We're looking out over this oh, blue skies. Yeah, it softened the blow a wee bit. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, weather-wise. But yeah, back to, back to Queen of the South, Dundee United for when Saturday comes. What I love doing, you know, photographing for the magazine and just, um, it was their match of the month. So, you know, I just have an open brief to, to go in and photograph it as I want. Mm. Um, and, and do you do all of their matches of the month or is it? No, no, we no. have four photographers okay. um, or three, three, I think who work um, regularly and another guy who does a wee bit, but there's three of us, but mm. um, I suppose nominally I cover sort of Scotland and the North of England. But I mean, having said that, I was in the Midlands last week doing a game and um, I've been to the South Coast. I've been, I've been everywhere. I've been mm. in Europe for them as well. So mm. it's just, Depends on who's available and who comes up with the ideas as well. Yeah, so yeah. So. I'd love to come back to when Saturday comes Absolutely. later, but let's let's go straight back to the start for for you. Ooh, yeah. How did you first get into? So you, I suppose, when people talk about football photography, I think there's only two two names that come to my mind: Stuart Roy Clark and yourself. So how did it? Gosh. How did it all start for you? How did you? And, and I know that you didn't start off doing sport. Um, no, I mean, I, I didn't. I mean, my, my um, in terms of photography, um, it, it's, always been a, it's always been a hobby of mine since I was a teenager. Um, but I never really thought I would make a professional career out of it. Um, for a start, it's a very difficult career to break into, even I mean, 30 odd years ago. Um, so I just did it as a hobby. Mm. Uh, and then um, through a sort of curious set of circumstances, um, I was editing um, a football fanzine in, in the 1980s. Um, so I got, I had a sort of experience of journalism. I came into contact with journalists who were interested in the fanzine. Um, and I was, you know, because of the photography, we would try and use photographs in the fanzine. So, it was, you know, I was always aware of what the journalism industry was about. And then there was an advert for a newspaper photographer um, for a weekly paper in Edinburgh. And I applied thinking, you know, I'll just... What the hell? I'll just apply. Yeah. Apparently, there was an, over ninety people applied for this job. This was in nineteen eighty nine, and I got the job, much to my surprise, <laughs> uh, and horror. Um, and then was sort of just sort of thrown out onto the streets to to start being a, a sort of weekly newspaper photographer in Edinburgh and in West Lothian. Actually, I spent most of my first summer out and about in West Lothian mm -hmm. shooting stories. I hadn't really got much of a clue what the hell I was doing, but you just you just it's sink or swim. It's a funny profession and the paper itself was attached to the Scotsman and Evening News in Edinburgh so I very quickly met the photographers there and just were in awe of the work that they were producing mm. constantly like on a daily basis and just learned everything from them that I could and then I got a chance with the Edinburgh Evening News so I was there for about three years and that's really when I started doing football photography okay but it was very much meat and two veg stuff it was sit yeah. behind the goal yeah. do the action 
you know, for the evening pink newspaper for for whatever. So, but I did, you know, I did hearts and hibs, um, you know, sort of alternate weeks, and you'd occasionally get a cup final to do, or 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 maybe a junior match. But the coverage of that sort of stuff was very, very limited back then. Um, but I was a Meadowbank Thistle supporter, so I was constantly niggling and, and <laughs> agitating for them to actually go and photograph Meadowbank. Yeah. So if I had a, like a day off, a Saturday off, I would just go and do it. Yeah. I would sit behind the goal at the Commonwealth Stadium, freezing myself to death, uh, just so I could get a bit of publicity for the team because they, they got nothing off the evening news mm. back then. Mm. And they were a great team. That was, you know, Terry Christie, the end of the Terry Christie era. They were a fantastic team. Um and so, you know, I, I managed to also sort of wheedle a bit of coverage in of Meadowbank Thistle. And then when I left the Evening News, I went to the Scotsman, um, primarily as a freelance and also a bit for the Herald. And again, I would just do behind-the-goal stuff, football, you know. There wasn't a lot of scope back then. Mm. People didn't have this insatiable appetite of, that they do nowadays for everything to do with football. Mm. It was always, you know, just very meat and two veg, as I say, very up and down the line. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I suppose the thing that kind of distinguishes a lot of your work from other people's work is yours is often about stuff that isn't necessarily happening on the pitch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I imagine at that time it really was. It was the action yeah. stuff that they wanted. It was, it was, yeah. the, it was the players and, and, you know, the goals, etc. Whereas you, you, yeah. you've seen to created a, a almost a little niche for yourself which is everything that's happening around side the kind yeah. of you know the stuff on the pitch i suppose what i was what i've been doing with my work is sort of visualizing what i verbalized mm. um as a as a younger person writing about and observing football i mean my match day experience at meadowbank thistle was all about everything bar the pitch i mean because although they had this phenomenal success in the 19 uh, mid 1980s up till then they'd been they'd been truly dreadful yeah. so what football was was about the experience mm. and about something unique uh, and i mean visiting meadowbank the stadium it was just a different match day experience than anybody else had in scottish football and i suppose when it came to then photographing football i was just i had this mindset of always looking for something completely different mm. and it would often get me in trouble with picture editors because uh, you know the, the obvious stuff the penalty box incidents, the the drama, the the goal scoring, the the celebrations, and my camera would be off wandering, looking for something different. Or you know, if I got the opportunity, I would be up and up on a terracing, looking down through you know a, a gap in a in a gate, looking through the crowd towards the ground. Something just a little bit different. Yeah. So I suppose something that, that other people weren't looking at really. Not a lot. Not yeah. back in those days. Not back in those days. And what is it that kind of um, attracted you to, to doing that? Is there some sort of influence in your life that sh- shaped how you've, you've viewed things and, you know, framed things? I guess so. I mean, I, th- I think it's all down to curiosity. Mm. I mean, I think all good journalism and photojournalism is down to how curious you are about the world. And, you know, there's absolutely no criticism of anybody who wants to sit behind a goal and take great football photos because I'm still in awe of the dedication that these people mm. have. Sports photographers are a phenomenon. Sure. But I, I mean, I, I very much didn't, I have never seen myself as a sports photographer. Mm. And oddly enough, not really strictly as a football photographer. I'm a photographer. And I apply this sort of same, I'm not going to say intellectual rigor because that makes it sound much more preposterous than it is. <laughs> I mean, the same, but the same curiosity sure. to anything that I'm shooting and the same sort of basic rules and the basic 
observations you know if I'm covering a story about poverty if I'm covering a story about the environment or politics or football or whatever even the Queen's pattern really I approach everything from the same mm. vantage point and it is to try and just unearth something different something a little bit more curious something that will give the viewer a little bit of added something mm. to the story um, and I mean, again, with this, when Saturday comes, I had written for them for mm. many years. So mm. I understood what the magazine was about. So when the opportunity came along about 12 or 13 years ago to start taking photographs for them, I, I kind of knew the ethos immediately and, and they knew about me and my mm. writing. So it was a, it's just a, it's just always been a natural fit mm. and real, you know, yeah, it's so satisfying. Yes, I can imagine. Yeah, I suppose it's that. That's almost a a great metaphor for some of the stuff you've written as well. So, um, and I think the kind of the values of the people that listen to this podcast would probably appreciate as well. So, you know, going to a match. I think it's probably a generation of kids now that support Man City that probably expect that that you know winning a treble every year is is you know. But for everyone else, it's very much about. It's not actually about winning. It's about the experience of going to the game. And I, I guess what you're doing is capturing that and the values yeah. and. And, and what that's like to to support a club and um and it's and it's interesting because you the you had the the privilege of being the very first piece published in the nutmeg when it came out a couple of years ago yes indeed um <clears throat> yeah i was I, I was colleagues with ali palmer um and alan patullo at the scotsman way back in the day and um when i heard that they were launching this they i think they approached me more with the idea of just con- general content mm. and photography um, and my sort of writing has, it's sort of bubbled along. I haven't had much published for a long time, you know, sort of um, sporadically. I mean, I'm part of a collective called Document Scotland. So I do a bit of a bit of writing to go with my photography and to go with the collective's work. But I was kind of keen to sort of start to, to dig around the recesses of my mind and mm. start to recall what was, you know, sort of be a bit autobiographical, what was it like growing up as a football supporter, try and re-engage myself with the past, because I've I've had a very odd football journey. Mm, You have, yes. yes. Yeah. So your piece, (laughs) I've got it in front of me, Mm -hmm. it's called uh, Finding My Identity. Yes. And so it's a it's a words and photograph essay basically, yes. isn't it? And it's kind of a look at. I'm trying to remember how many games it was that you've sort of. Oh, good three, question. Four, uh, just about half a dozen, isn't it? I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's about six uh, six different matches there. Yeah. But it's it's a fascinating journey that you've taken in terms of mm. you know for most people they will have a team that they support for their life for whatever reason but it's not quite gone the same way for you has it? No, it's not. And I mean some of it I I pulled my hands up and say I, I'm to blame if you like and other circumstances have overtaken me. Um, I was I was a Hibs supporter. I grew I was born in Edinburgh but nowhere near Easter Road. In fact. A lot nearer Tynecastle. Mm. Why did I like Hibs? Um, I mean, when, when when kids attach themselves to football clubs, it's at the age of sort of seven or eight. It's often for the most bizarre reasons. Yes, and I think it was the it was the strip okay. with the white sleeves and the green cuffs, and I think that was the the first thing I liked about them. Um, and I don't remember how good or how bad they were. I rem- one of the first um, uh, memories I've got of Hibs at all playing in a match and I wasn't there but I, I remember the result was the 1972 cup final when they lost 6-1 to Celtic 
Maybe at that point I should have listened to the inner me and said, this isn't a good idea. <laughs> but I think a 6-1 cup final defeat is maybe a metaphor for the, for my, my, the journey I've travelled over the last 45 years in mm. football. But yeah, when, I mean, so when I was old enough to sort of express an interest in, in being taken to football, uh, my dad, who's an Aberdonian and an Aberdeen fan, I mean, there's no hibbies in my family. There never had been. Um, and there weren't really any in the area where I lived either. Um, but Hibbs it was, and he took me to Easter Road, first game, 1974, November, 5-0 against Morton, and 40-odd years later, I can still remember it. I mean, mm. I can still close my eyes and remember so many details about that. Mm. So when it came to writing about myself and my identity, about my football identity, going right back to those early memories was really, really important, and mm. try and really re-engage with them. Uh, and try and think what was the, what was that experience like, and then why did it change? Because it did change through my early teenage years. I became very disillusioned with Hibs. Mm. Um, and, and was that yeah. because you, as an individual, were understanding things? You know, you said you've you've quite politically mm. engaged as well. Yeah. So you know, those the way you think about the world changes, doesn't it? As yeah. you grow older, was that was it just that, or was it you know purely the way that Hibs were being run, or? I mean, I, I don't, I don't remember the way Hibs were being run. I remember they got, they got, they were poor, mm. sort of seventy seven, seventy eight, seventy nine. But that was that was around the time of my sort of thirteenth, fourteenth birthday. Uh, you know, that was the explosion of punk rock. <laughs> you challenged everything. Yeah. You know, you challenged your parents, your upbringing, and why not challenge your football club? And to me, when I when I think about Hibs, I sort of still think of sort of people with sideburns and long hair and flares and and scarves tasseled round their 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 uh, their arms and stuff like that and their their wrists and it just felt very old fashioned and Meadowbank Thistle was the first club I was allowed to go to on my own mm. so you know it was so safe so I would go down there I would take the bus the number 45 bus and I was thinking about this the other day it must be one of the great supporter journeys in the world because the the route of the 45 took you through Edinburgh's old town and rattled down the high street and down, you know, down towards Holyrood and then it went down Holyrood Road and then sort of skirted around the park. So as, as a journey through history, you know, a sort of historical journey, you sort of engaging with Edinburgh, it was just a beautiful journey. And I used to sit there on my own in this little rattly number 45 bus with my, orange, my black and amber scarf on. You know, the, one of how many Meadowbank fans were there in the late 70s? Oh, God, 50 of us, mm. maximum. Mm. Spread all over Edinburgh. Mm. And the people I met then, kids my age, with a similar rebellious streak, um, into the same music I was in, starting mm. to get into. I mean, that, as much as anything, blew me away. And also just the kind of, the sheer difference of it. You know, the Commonwealth Stadium. It didn't look like a football stadium. Mm. It looked like something, you know, like, a, like it had been dropped down from an alien spaceship. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just new. It was different. It was individual. You know, you, you, you every, If I look back and I think of all those Meadowbank Thistle fans, them as individuals just stood out. Their characters stood out because there were so few of them. Whereas you would go to a Hibs game, and I think I wrote about that in the article, and there were just thousands of them. Mm. And to so my mind, was, they all look the same. Yeah, so it was the uniqueness <laughs> yeah. that you kind of enjoyed about it. Absolutely. You know, a kind of sense of um, 
not being part of a you know a mass movement. Yes, yes, and, yeah. And I mean, I didn't really have an I, uh, you know, a family upbringing or an identity as as Hibs or you know, I wasn't from Leith. I wasn't from I don't know a Scots Irish background. You know, all these things to do with identity. I didn't have any of that. Mm. So being a being a Hibby was a choice. Um, it wasn't one of those choices that were made for me sure. by birth. Yeah. So when it came to stopping going, and it wasn't one day I just said, right, I'm not going anymore. There was a kind of crossover period and I would wear my hip scarf and go and watch them and get more and more disillusioned and bored. And then I would go, you know, next week Meadowbank were at home and I would go and watch them. And, you know, I think I also said, you know, if you if you were chanting at, and we did, we chanted a lot, all 50 of us. Mm. If your, your chant meant so much because there was only 50 of you mm. and the team responded to that i mm. believe that whereas if there's you know if there's, obviously if there's thousands of you it has an impact but you within that thousands as an individual your voice is lost sure and there's the metaphor sure my voice was lost as a hibs fan i gained a voice as a meadowbank fan so this is i mean this is fascinating because this is even before modern day football you would call i guess you know that kind of um identity stripping you know capitalist approach mm. to you know, elitism the, the premier league and you know all the money that came in with tv as well mm. so you were you were disillusioned with that kind of popular premiership as we call Absolutely. it football even back then before the golf was what it is now yeah yeah myself and my friends we, we were i mean we'd and the other funny thing about meadowbank is that they were such a new club they'd only been founded in 1974 um, so it, it really was a conscious choice to go and support them. There wasn't, there wasn't a family background to rely on. There wasn't a history and a tradition. Mm. You, you, you made, you know, and the funny thing was, you know, back in, there was no merchandising available. Yeah. Yeah. So we all had customized scarves. I had a scarf that my granny had knitted. And then I, then I got a Dundee United scarf. So all the colours were completely different. <laughs> so some were kind of tangerine, some were amber, some were bright yellow. And with this sort of collection of mad scarves following this mad little team, you know, it's just great. <laughs> so um, for the benefit of people that don't know how that ended, what, what, what was it? Oh, the it ended ultimate? in tears. <laughs> oh, God, it ended in tears. How did it, how did that, how did it lead to your third team? Oh, well, I mean, we... Meadowbank Thistle were franchised to Livingston. That's that's the the long and the short of it. And, um, it, you know, it was a businessman who came in, said he knew what was best for the club, um, you know, got the board on side. I mean, there was... As supporters, we just had no voice, mm. you know. It, you just... The, the, the club was run by a committee. It wasn't really even a board of directors. It had a founder membership which was supposed to be a closed group, but they somehow legally managed to change that. Okay. Uh, so this particular individual who came in, um, you know, just became the driving force for change. But it was a change that was an anathema mm. to, to the fans because it ba basically meant, um, what well, I was going to say asset stripping, there weren't really any assets. Mm. Um, the asset was the name and the fact that they had a place in the Scottish League. And so his vision of taking the club to Livingston, you know, he, he, he did face opposition, strident, virulent opposition um, from the fans. Um, we mounted a, you know, a very honest, genuine, clever campaign, 
we we even got the money together, £120,000 in those days, wow. to buy the club. Yeah. But he wouldn't sell to us because, you know, for his own reasons, he saw something different. He saw future. Um, and when they moved, uh, they moved, they actually played half a season at Meadowbank Stadium as Livingston, which was really the final kick, kick in the unmentionables. But once they moved, I mean, there was a handful, I'll say a small handful of, of Thistle supporters who went with them. Um, there's a few from out in West Lothian. But the rest of us were, were just cast to the wind. Mm. We didn't have a club. Mm. Um, and some drifted off and, uh, you know, some drifted off to watch Hibs, a few hearts. One of my mates went back to sort of his roots in, in, in Falkirk and started watching Stenhouse Muir. Um, and there was a whole group of us, Edinburgh-based, who kind of thought, well, what do we do next? Mm. And one of the guys, David Baxter, who's now, I think, chair of the Lowland, Scottish Lowland League, um, he'd been very vociferous in the campaign against it. But he got involved, or he was approached by Edinburgh City, who were then in the second tier of the East of Scotland League and playing at a dog-dirt-strewn public <laughs> park on the south of Edinburgh on the slope of a hill. And he just got to us one by one and said, you know, this club, you know, why don't you get involved? What are you doing on a Saturday? And then you know, sort of a moment of utter weakness... I said, yeah, well, I'll, I'll come along. And the first game I saw at Ferniside Recreation Ground, Edinburgh City against Peebles Rovers, um, freezing cold, no cover, peeing down with rain, um, no pies, no programmes, I mean, nothing. Mm. You know, a changing, a changing hut was a shipping container. Um, the players put the nets up. It was, a, it was just light years even away from second division or whatever it was, Scottish football. But, you know, I looked along the terracing, and, or terrace, the, the, the rope, uh, and, and, you know, there was X, Y, and Z, my pals, and there was another one, and there was another one, and we started talking. Oh, it's Hoyt Royal Albert away next week. Are we going down? Yeah, how are we getting there? There's no supporters, no bus. We'll get the bus. We'll get the number 95 from St Andrew's Square. We'll go down there. We went down there, a League Cup tie. We discovered there was a bar in the ground at Albert Park. We had a great afternoon, about... 15, 20 of us, we never looked back. Yeah. That was it. We thought, no, we are a band of brothers. We've we've grown up doing this on a Saturday. And it doesn't matter that the club we're now gonna watch plays in a, a different, you know, different colours. We're just gonna do this. Mm. And very quickly we discovered that there was actually potential. I mean, nobody thought in nineteen ninety five that there would be a pyramid. Mm. Nobody thought that a team like Edinburgh City which had been in the Scottish League in the 1930s and 40s, could possibly get back there. But there was just that slight, small, tangible possibility that maybe it might happen. Mm. And it was something to aim to. It's something to aim for, mm. you know. And within a few years, you know, things like Airdrie had gone bust, um, Clyde Bank had gone bust. So, that, you know, the Scottish League was opening up to the possibility of Highland teams and it was expanding. Mm. So we applied twice for the league. Um, and in the first time we applied, I think we got the second highest number of votes. I can't remember who got in that year, but we got the second highest number of votes. I think we only got about four, but we got the second highest. <laughs> and so immediately people were looking at us, obviously, as a potential for league football. Yeah. And then, you know, I was, I, as it is at clubs that size... We're all involved, you know, absolutely intensively with everything from sorting the kit out to putting the mm. goal nets out. We moved the club to Meadowbank Stadium, which was massive. That meant we could get in the SFA. 
It had a social club, which we never had at Meadowbank, at the top of uh, Leith Walk there, um, which became a sort of focal point. And we just built it up, mm. brick by bloody brick, mm. year by year. And, you know, we established it in the Premier League of the um, East of Scotland. We'd occasionally win a cup, but we were up against giants like Whitehill Welfare, and, you know, who had resources. Mm. But bit by bit, we clawed it back and we got there. And when they announced the pyramid, we were very fortunate. We won the uh, we won the Lowland League in its second year. The first year they had the pyramid playoffs. We lost to Brora the second year. We beat Cove, mm-hmm. home and away. And then we beat East Stirlingshire, mm-hmm. home and away. And we got our place in the league. And that was just fulfillment of 20 years of, mm-hmm. of real graft and belief that we could do something with what we wanted to do, which was different from Meadowbank, is we wanted to make a club in our own image. Mm. You know, that had something different and special and, I'm going to say, democratic about it. Yes, it's interesting to say that because it, it, what you're talking about there is very... We had Ali on a couple of weeks ago talking about Nutmeg. Yep. And he was talking about the kind of the punk ethos and the mm. DIY attitude to yeah. it. And I suppose what you're saying there is, and we talk about democratic, almost like fan ownership as well. Yeah. In that sense, it was being run by mm. on a democratic basis by members that were volunteering their time, yeah. you know, putting all these hours into to build a club into, into something that you know they felt represented them. Yeah, I mean, punk ethos is something I touch on quite heavily in the um, in the article, and that sort of sustained us right the way through the 1980s. You know, with the fanzines we did, a wall and stuff like that, Cheers, which I. I wasn't involved with that predated me really. Um, there was always that feeling, that belief that yeah, we can do things. We'll we'll make mistakes, but then we'll learn from the mistakes. Mm. And you know, we did ask for advice now and again, but we were just headstrong and maybe a bit bullish, a bit confident. But you need a bit of that. And but we just did it our way. And you know, if it if we'd remained a team in the east of Scotland first division, winning the odd cup, maybe getting promoted now and again. But our Saturday afternoons would have been spent with friends. We may well have been content with that. Mm. You know, there wasn't this... We didn't take over Edinburgh City with the idea of, you know, let's charge through the leagues, let's let's buy success. Sure, because that almost sounds like the antithesis of what you were sort of resented about. Absolutely. Hibs in the end. Yeah, Hibs and Meadowbank Thistle. That's mm. the way they'd gone. And we were, you know, we were determined that it wouldn't be like that. Unfortunately, um, I think our strength which was this very open, democratic, you know, non-codified structure that the club had. Unfortunately, when we did get promoted into the Scottish League, it meant that we were easy prey for people who wanted to move in and had something in mind, a vision, which it, it didn't really chime with our vision. Mm. So, you know, the people, people came in and were able to get control of the club very easily um, you know, under the kind of guise of let's we've got to professionalise, we've got to move on, the club can't stay static, um, you know, we've got to bring investment in. We knew all that stuff. We do know all that stuff. But, you know, a lot of us had had ex- experience of around 40 years in the Scottish League. Mm-hmm. A lot of it as supporters, but when you support a, a second division team or a League Two or a League One team, as they are now, you get to know how these clubs are run. You see people come, you see people go, you see the mistakes. Mm. You know, you can list them. The clubs that have gone up, have gone down. How's that happened? You know, locals get involved, well-intentioned, people come along with money. Who is there every time to pick up the pieces? The supporters. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, why are, why are Third and Lanark not in the league? Mm. You know, things like that. Why are Meadowbank not in the league? Why is Clydebank not in the league? Because ultimately, their supporters couldn't resist mm. this powerful urge. And it's almost a self-destructive urge. People yeah. getting involved with football. Yeah. And it's there's a lot of ego involved, and and we know, and I don't see this as any satisfaction. I have no contact or or connection with Edinburgh City. But I know that if they get relegated, and I hope it never happens, I really do sincerely hope it never happens, but if they go back to the Lone League, chances are it'll be me and my mates picking up the, mm-hmm. the pieces. Um, as we did when, in a sense, when Meadowbank went, we picked up the pieces, but rather than reconstitute a Meadowbank thistle, because interestingly enough, um, the man who took Livingston away he bought up the naming rights, so we weren't even allowed to call Oh, wow, okay. We you couldn't even have a Phoenix team. Couldn't even have a Phoenix team, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, Edinburgh City was a redemption, if you like. Um, and, and, you know, if it happens again and, and, and they go bust or they go down, you know, I rather suspect, I don't know, I rather suspect it will be the same group of friends who, who come to the rescue. Mm. If it's not us, it might be the people who are involved as supporters now, you know. Sure. So is there a small part of you that feels you have a little bit of not unfinished business, but you, is there a little part of you that would want to get involved in the club again? Or are you kind of quite happy now? Because we should say you do have a team in England where you, you, you spend a bit of time. Yeah, because follow, I, yeah. So. I have a local team I've, I've, um, where I live, which is Tranmere Rovers. And curiously enough, they were always my, my English team anyway. Okay. Because uh, I call it third club syndrome. Okay. Because they were the third club in Merseyside. Uh, Meadowbank were the third club in Edinburgh, so I, I for some reason gravitated towards them. Um, and uh, of course, they had Pat Nevin playing for them as well. Yeah, I, I kind of missed all that when I moved down. I moved okay. down in the sort of um, my my career as a, a sort of more hands on Rovers fan has has coincided with the absolute worst period <laughs> in their history, where they have drifted down for the championship. Um, the gone are the glory days of three. Uh, premiership playoffs in a row, League Cup finals, trips to Wembley. Um, I, I've just watched them falling like an autumn leaf mm. over the last 15 years. Until as recently as two weeks ago when I went to Wembley and watched them being promoted back into the yeah. Football League, which was a joyous occasion. It was, it was, And it's a club which also has given a lot of its identity in the last three years back to the supporters. Mm. Mark Palios has come in and he's, you know, he owns the club, he is the boss, but his engagement with the supporters is phenomenal. Mm. You know, he is one of them and he is loved by the supporters. And, you know, there are no hidden motives. There's no ulterior motive. Um, and, he, you know, the, the fans have managed to take control of the whole um, environment around the club and shape that environment for the best so that club, so that fans that go there, go there really feeling part of it. Everything from putting up a statue, which we all subscribe to, to the greatest ever manager, um, to sort of redoing the stadium, having a fan park. None of it's tokenistic mm. either. Mm. It's real. And so when I go there, I mean, I, you know, I want them to win. I'm not invested emotionally like I was, you know, with Meadowbank or Edinburgh City or even Hibs as a boy. You know, I, I go along, I pay my money, I have a pint with my mates. And, and I enjoy the football and, and I, you know, I get in a, a huff if they lose and I'm <laughs> joyous if they win. Um, it is a different experience. And mm. it's English football, which is totally different from Scottish football. Mm. Um, it is, isn't it? it I, can't, is. I can't put, quite put my finger on why, but mm. it, it is different. Yeah. Uh, and they both have their little quirks, which are delightful in their own ways. Yeah, I, I, 
Uh, yeah, there is. The, the one um, explanation I heard was from a guy who, I think it was an English guy, and he held two season tickets, one for St Mirren and one for Wickham Wanderers. And he was asked, what's the difference? He said, oh, the standard of football is absolutely the same. The only difference is the swearing. <laughs> yeah, I could probably guess that. <laughs> and there's an intensity about Scottish football and, and, and anger. And I think it kind of reflects society mm. up here rather mm. than down there. I mean, the English get angry. They, they wreck bars at European Championships and World Cups. We know that. But there's a different... There's, 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 on match day, there's this intensity, there's this... I remember going years ago when Fergie was in charge of Aberdeen and I used to go and watch them quite a lot. My dad's an Aberdeen fan. So we, but I used to just go independently as well because it was such a great football team to watch. So I'd watch them at Hibs and Hearts and Dundee United. And I went to Falkirk one time and Falkirk were, I think, just up into the Premier League. And it was a Wednesday night at Brockville and Brockville, oh, uh-huh. Brockville. Uh-huh. You know, you could eulogise about that place. And Falkirk were 3-1 up and... Uh, that was the time when um, Aberdeen were cup winners, cup holders. And they were 3-1 up after an hour. And the dissent and the moaning and the complaining from the Falkirk fans, uh, you wouldn't believe it. Unbelievable. Uh, Every pass that was hit astray, they were up in arms about something. And yet, when they scored, you know, the kind of crowd noise and the passion and the support for the team was unbelievable. Yes. But it's that flip-flop between yeah. anger and ecstasy that Scottish football, that's what it's all about. The best one I ever heard was a, a few years ago, I followed Sterling Albion quite closely, and just because they're the local team to me, and when I sort of got involved in Scottish football, and the, the best one I heard is, I think they beat uh, I think they beat East Sterling or Stenhouse Muir, one of the two, 9-1, and somebody came away from the ground saying, that's the worst 9-1 I've ever seen. That was a Sterling <laughs> Albion fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got a similar one. We uh, When I was a Meadow Bank fan, we played Brechin at the stadium and we were five nil up at half time and we were, I mean it was just golden football everything mm. bang bang beautiful the second half en- ended 1-1 one, one, so it was 6-1 and I remember my friend saying if we play like that we're going to get bloody relegated <laughs> <laughs> we won 6-1 yeah but the second half yeah. football fans. yeah that is football great isn't it that is football so um Moving on, you're, you've, you've, you've tried your hand at a bit of fictional writing now. So this was your, your piece in Nutmeg issue one. Yeah. The, first, the first one was about identity and your kind of experiences of different teams you followed. Yeah. But you, you, you've... Um, up in FC. Up in FC, yeah. Um, and as we sit here on the outskirts of Falkirk, I'm reminded that Up in FC are, are a completely fictional creation um, of my mind. But they, they exist in a small village just outside Falkirk, sort of on a hillside overlooking it. And actually, mm. from where we're sitting, I can see a small village on a hillside overlooking Falkirk. And, and I actually describe a couple of times in the story uh, about that sort of sweep over central Scotland and the ochles the in the distance and the, the kelpies gleaming in the sunshine. So um, I feel sort of a bit of a pool and affinity to where we are now. But, I mean, this, this story came out um, really just of... 40 years of observations, conversations, um, little scenes that play through my head and wanting to do something with them. And, I've, you know, I've written in the past, I wrote for When Saturday Comes a full 30 years ago, and, and I've written about my photography and other photography mm-hmm. for um, a collective document Scotland. But I always wanted to do a bit more with my writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just thought, try and do something about football. 
try and take all those experiences, those raw emotions and experiences, and put it into something. But I didn't want it really from the fans' perspective. I actually wanted it from inside. Because as a fan, I never played football to a high standard. I played at you know, dreadful Sunday standards, Sunday amateur standards. But I loved playing. Um, and I managed my team and I coached a bit. You know, I did everything. Um, and, you know, I've been very close to, to managers at Edinburgh City and, you know, Gary Jordan and Terry Christie at Meadowbank. I know these people. And talking to them down the years, I always sort of felt that there's this... As an outsider, as a fan, you just, you're just you either a fan or a player. Mm. And as a fan, you don't really understand the magic circle. You don't understand what goes on there. So when it comes to things like tactics and stuff like that, I'll never be able to write convincingly because I just can't write from the inside. But all the other stuff about the protagonists, about their lives, about plot, about match day experience, about the mechanics of staging a football match and a training session and picking a team and the conversations that go on around that. I can do that, mm. because I've, I've seen it all before. Yeah, and, and so it was just a matter of, I mean, first of all, I wrote this one self-contained short story, which was quite dramatic. It involves a car crash and a couple of deaths and a bit of a mystery and, and what have you. But the background was the football, was mm. played out over a football season. And then um, Ali Palmer... I think he quite liked it, obviously published it, which was very gratifying. And then he said, well, so what's next for Up in FC? So I thought, well, I'll just take this essentially the same story uh, and elongate it over five parts. Okay. It was originally four parts, but I got to the end of part, part four and I hadn't finished. So <laughs> I had to go to Alan and say, please, can I have another part? And he said, yeah, keep it going. Um, so we're just about, it's just about Nutmeg 8 will be the final chapter, the final chapter of five chapters, um, where the whole thing comes to a crashing halt, happy end, I don't know, you'll have to buy the magazine. Yeah, absolutely, great plug for, for Nutmeg issue yeah, 8 there, yeah, yeah. which but, I think is available next week, uh, yeah, soon, I think middle it? of June, something okay. like that, yeah, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's very satisfying as well, I mean, I, you know, it, it, it just scratch for me scratches an itch or whatever they say you know itches mm. a scratch scratches an itch mm. about something I like doing which is writing, and it gives a different dimension to my my sort of relationship with football as well, mm. because I think it is you know I see my, my photography as 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 one thing I see the writing as another thing I see being a football fan as a third thing, but I do like to bring them all together because I think the whole immersive experience is then all about me. Yes. And then it just I feed more into it, you know. The, you know, a lot of the scenes that play out in the whole up and drama are scenes that I've photographed. Yes. So, you know, those aspects. So it's all quite a nice way to together. bring it together. Yeah, yeah I see yeah. that. And your and up and FC will will join an almost legendary list of fictional clubs created in Scottish football. I mm. the shame we had Brian Jackson on a few weeks ago talking about his play Plyman Cometh and. Mm. Um, I'm ashamed to say I can't remember the name of the team that he created in that remember, yeah, in that yeah. play, but it is brilliant. And as I said off uh, before we started recording, it is coming to the fringe. So if you haven't seen it yet, then, oh yeah, uh, definitely, definitely worth watching it. But the other one is Kilnocky FC yeah. from A Shot of Glory. So it joins a pretty exclusive list of fictional Scottish clubs. Yeah, if we can get a few more, maybe we'll get a little Premier League, a little league. <laughs> that would be great, league. wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely, fantastic fun. Uh, I don't know who would represent these teams, but. Yeah, I'm sure we could cobble together. Absolutely. Along the lines of Ducla Pumphurst and, you know. (laughs)
Um, one last thing mm. I wanted to ask you about, which uh, probably doesn't lend itself too well to the medium of spoken word, but um, what are some of your favourite pictures? Do you have particular images that you would, you know, if you had to pick five for a gallery? Oof, yes. Well, I, I had to pick quite a few more because I had the big exhibition when Saturday comes. Of course. At the... National Portrait Gallery in Edinburgh a couple of years ago, so which was it was curated, but I mean I was very much involved in that, mm. and yeah, I mean that was that was interesting because then it forced me to to look at my all my work in a slightly different way and through the eyes of the curator as well, and mm. stitching it all together with a wider narrative all about identity, Scottish identity, um, in the aftermath of the independence referendum. So there were a few that made it into that that were uh, very poignant to me that that. Um, yeah, we're, we're, there was one, there's a set of, a very simple picture of um, of seats, the upturned uh, orange seats at Meadowbank mm. Stadium, the Commonwealth Stadium. And it, it's so much personal resonance for me, but also because um, I illustrated it by the, the numbers on the seats were, I think, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98. And that was my kind of slightly sublim- sublim- subliminal, subliminal tribute um, to to Hillsborough, mm. which um, has been, you know, as a football supporter, not just a Scottish football supporter, I mean, Hillsborough, you can't underestimate the impact that that event had. Uh, and I mean, I live on Merseyside, so, you know, it's everywhere. But even before that, it was a real twisting point. Turning point, twisting point, bit mm. of both. Mm. So I, lo- I loved that. That was, you know, that was kind of a statement about that in that photograph. But my favourite pictures usually are ones where I'm close up to people. So you see expressions and you, you kind of get the real characters, the fabric. There's a there's three men in matching woolly hats in the shed at Morton, which I absolutely love. I think they're just, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'd, yeah. If I go back to Morton, I'll make sure I stand next to them. And it's surreptitiously smoking as well, which wasn't allowed. Oh. <laughs> and they've got these funny, almost Scandinavian Nordic uh, hats uh. Uh, with little pointed tops. And I think there's two brothers and a third one, and it's it's they're fantastic. Um, yeah, so anywhere where I can get close up, because I like being, I like the feeling, the intense feeling of being in a crowd, mm. um, and and being able to photograph in that crowd because you're not really allowed to, mm. you're not supposed to as a photographer. Mm. You're supposed to, as I was saying. You know, you're supposed to sit behind the goal. You're sure. supposed to point your camera at the action. Um, and, I, you know, the emotion's fine. You know, when a goal is scored and you see people sort of bursting out and cheering. I love all that, but I love the quiet moments, mm. the reflective moments, the engaged moments where supporters are really at peace and at one with their football team in a game. And I, that, to me, I love that sort of stuff. Mm. I really love that. So. Mm. I suppose those are those are the two pictures I would always pick out as my favourite two. Mm. Well, last question we always have on the podcast is um, if you could change one thing about Scottish football to make it better, what would it be? Oh, goodness. Um, I think with the advent of the pyramid system, and I just noticed that there are about 300 junior clubs all <laughs> apply to join yes. the Scotland League. Yes. I think what has to happen is that the, the divisions themselves have got to be become bigger. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the Premier, that's up to them because you know that's a world I don't know a lot about. But I think 
you know, as you go further down, I think, um, I, I think that there will be a churn of clubs inevitably um, coming in and out of the league. Um, but I would like to see, you know, whether it's League One and League Two becoming sixteen teams. Okay, that might not revolutionise Scottish football. It might not lead to us even getting to a World Cup. Um, but I, I just think it might just reflect the times we're living in. It might shake it up a bit. It might take the pressure off clubs at the mm. bottom. Because at the moment, I think the fear of the trapdoor out into the Highland or Lowland League is is producing some pretty rotten football at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. And I think at, at that level, we must start to examine what football clubs are. Uh, and they're not about 11 guys kicking a football about on a Saturday. They're about communities... They're about identity. They, they're, they're a two-way conversation about what a club can offer to its community and what a community can offer to its club. And I think broadening that base will help more clubs you know, develop models, if the money can trickle down, develop models where they become real focal points within communities across Scotland. I think that is an opportunity. I think that's something that will ring very true to people that listen to the supporters direct scotland podcast the community and what clubs can do for their communities rather than 11 guys kicking a football on a saturday which is why we all love the sport but ultimately it can do so much more than that can't it, it should do it should, do, should, much more. It should yeah. do more yeah. well thank you so much for your time My really pleasure. Appreciate it. that was Good a fun. fascinating conversation Great. thank you so much for joining us so there we go that was colin mcpherson on episode 25 of behind the goals absolute pleasure I feel like I say that every week because all of our guests are... They are an absolute pleasure. They are an absolute pleasure. They're lovely pleasure. people. We wouldn't invite them on if they weren't. Yeah, absolutely. But Colin um, is just a fascinating character and it's very hard to talk about photography on a podcast. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> Unless it's a video podcast so you can show the pictures. Well, that's yeah. very true. But what I would encourage anyone to do if they have the slightest bit of interest is to go and dig out some of his work in Nutmeg and mm. when Saturday yeah. comes where he does a lot of stuff um, and does a great uh, deal to promote Scottish football. Yeah. Um, and yeah, what I love about him is the fact that he tries to capture, I think, the essence of Scottish football, which yeah. is actually... Um, perhaps controversially, not about the stuff that happens on the field, but yeah. about the whole culture, about following Scottish football. It's, it's an interesting thing, actually, just thinking about how you promote uh, something like football. Um, so there's a, lot, there's a lot spoken about football, there's lots written about football, but you actually don't see much in the way of you know, visual images about football other than TV. Mm. And, that's, and the focus when you're watching a, a football match on TV is on the action on the pitch. And I, yeah. I, I'm always most interested when a photographer's lens shifts away from the pitch to what's going on in the stands or outside the stadium. Um, and a lot of stuff about you know, the experience of being a fan. It's not about the 90 minutes when the, when the, when the right. team's playing. It's about the pauses in play. It's about what happens before play, but what happens at half-time, yeah. after full-time, before you get to the stadium, after you, after you leave the stadium. Absolutely, yeah. I think that, that whole your match day routine as well. You know, yeah. I always talk about what you know, what it is to go to a football game yeah. and you go to the pub beforehand, perhaps get a, a, a big boy breakfast as we, as we do. Yeah, <laughs> we big boy a, breakfast. A big boy breakfast. Yeah. Uh, and you just, I mean, that's, and that's the kind of stuff yeah. that Colin captures. Yeah. And, and it does great, it makes a great impression yeah. to them. And, and I guess unless you're a fan of the teams that are, are, that are successful almost all the time, 
then it's, it's got to be something yes. else that, that, well, that keeps you Yes, here. absolutely. And I think that's kind of what we he explores in his article is actually there's a very small percentage of teams that actually win anything, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> so for everyone else, it's about it's, it's not actually else. about celebrating yeah. what happens on yeah. the pitch. It's about yeah. celebrating what that club means to their community. Yeah. And I think Colin is a great advocate of, um, even though he might not know it, a great advocate of Supporters Direct because he talks about what it means to support a team and the identity of a yeah, team and yeah. the values of a team and, you know, representing yeah. community cohesion and um, what clubs yeah. can do for their community. Yeah. So um, absolutely lovely interview. And so thank you very much to him to, to come in along. Yeah. And it kind of leads nicely into um, what we want to talk about, which is following on from last week's where we asked people to kindly pledge to become full members of supporters, directors, individuals. That's right. Yeah, I mean, last week I gave a, gave a very long-winded appeal to support us to, to in, in the words of Bob Gelders, give us your effing money. Yeah. Um, and uh, and really, what what we were trying to do there is, is introduce a, a new a new method, a new way that you can support our organisation and the work that we do, and allow us to keep on doing the things that we do through Patreon. Um, whatever money you can afford, um, improve Scottish football. And you want to put your money where your mouth is? Go to the, our Patreon page. Yeah. So if you go to the Scottish Supporters Network website, uh, and there's a membership page on there, which has a link to our Patreon page. I, th- I guess if you go to Patreon.com and search for Supporters like Scotland as well, it's another yep. quick way of finding it. Whatever you can afford. Whatever. And, and no Anything. more. And, and no Anything. more. And no more than you can afford. Uh, we would love to be able to use that to to our shared interest and and make. Scottish football as good as it can be. And the more people that pledge, the stronger we are. Absolutely. So um, thank you very much to everyone that already has pledged. And it's been a great effort so far. And uh, it's only going to improve. And hopefully we'll start to make more and more impact going forward. So um, hopefully, please keep listening to these podcasts. It makes a, it does make a, a big impact. And uh, share it, rate it, pledge, become a member, etc., etc., And uh, play your part and... Thank you very much, and we'll speak to you next week. Yeah, and thank you for listening. Speak to you soon. Behind the Goals is a Supporters Direct Scotland podcast. You can get in touch with the show by emailing behindthegoals at hotmail.com or you can also tweet the show at SupDirectScott. That's S-U-P-P Direct Scott.